Hi, and welcome to Where the White Coats Come Off. We are Katie and Beth, and we are here to help you through your PA journey into PA school and then through PA school. Today, we're bringing you an episode from the UK. We are so excited to have James from the Physician Associate Podcast, based out of the UK, on today's episode. We are so excited for our listeners to get a little bit of glimpse of what PA life is like in the UK, um, because we know there are some similarities and some differences here. So maybe we can start off by just telling us about your journey and about kind of what the PA profession is like overseas. Sure. So the PA profession in the UK is um, relatively young compared to the profession that you've established in the US. Um, Really, it's been around since 2005, six, something like that. Um, But it was very, very small. There were maybe one or two universities turning out a few, a handful of students every year. And it didn't go very well. Some of the universities folded after a few years. There wasn't really a lot of interest in, from any of the hospitals or the doctors to take up PAs. And it sort of lost interest by 2010, 2012, which wasn't much going on. Uh, fortunately, it got sort of reinvigorated around 2013, 14, and then has just exploded in the last seven or eight years now. Gone from three courses um, to 36, I think, now, wow. uh, courses in the UK. Um, and from a couple of hundred PAs now up to 2,000 plus at the moment with plans to get another 1,000 PAs out every year through the, through the universities. So it's really just in the last five or six years that it's gained a lot of traction and exploded. That's fantastic, yeah. So what does your day-to-day look like? So I'm a bit unique uh, in that I'm quite indecisive at the moment. I uh, <laughs> haven't quite chosen specialty that I want to work in. So I split my week into three. One day a week I work with an organisation called Health Education England, which is sort of the governmental body that funds all the courses for nurses and doctors and paramedics and physiotherapists and PAs. Um, and I'm employed to shout about how great PAs are and to <laughs> tell everybody in the local area to employ lots of PAs and make PA jobs. And then I do two clinical jobs. So um, half my week is in primary care, in the general practice, sort of family medicine. So I'm seeing everybody from one-day-old babies to 101-year-old um, patients with anything, any presentation that they might come to. So it could be mental health, could be dermatology, could be a cough, could be end-of-life palliative medicine, um, doing home visits, doing the whole sort of range of different family mm-hmm. medicine things there. And then the other half of my week I spend in hospital um, in the uh, medical assessment unit, which is the bit that patients come into once they've been stabilised in our emergency department um, or the GPs might refer into the hospital, they come into our area, we sort of assess them, hopefully sort them out and uh, get them home if we can or sort them out and into the hospital into the right specialty that they need to come in. So I'm sort of that, that interface. Yeah, that's really, Um, really interesting that you're able to split your time that way. And that way you can kind of get a good idea about the different inpatient, outpatient, all that. That's fantastic. Now, I know the healthcare system is totally different than it is in the United States. United States is insurance-based. For our listeners, can you just give a a brief overview of kind of what the healthcare system is like in the UK? Yeah, wow. Um, (laughs) So we have the National Health Service. It was set up after the Second World War and is funded by taxpayers. So every adult who has a job um, pays tax. Um, Obviously, the more tax you pay, dependent on how much you earn. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's sort of a basic rate of tax, and then it goes up and up as you earn more. 
um, and then the government just decides what they're going to spend the tax money on. They give a proportion of the budget, the largest proportion of the taxpayer budget goes to the health service, mm. but obviously they also fund the police and the fire service and the schools and all the other bits that the government do. Uh, so it's National Health Service, and they it runs all of the hospitals um, in the country, and all of the uh, inpatient psychiatry hospitals as well uh, are funded that, and then money is also, the taxpayer money is also used to fund the general practice and clinics and surgeries locally as well so it's free to use uh, for anybody in the uk so even if you're not a taxpayer and um, you can use the nhs services as sort of seen as a public service uh, mm. that everybody can use and um, free at the point of use so you guys don't have to deal with insurances or credentials or like uh, what about billing and coding you don't have to deal with any of that is that correct there is no there's no bill nobody gets charged to use the, the nhs no patients don't have to pay anything ever. Oh. That's fantastic. Um, the only thing you might pay is if you get prescribed a medicine mm-hmm. from your GP, then you get maybe something like a £10 prescription charge, um, which just goes towards the cost of covering some of the medicine. Yeah, there's, there's basically nothing to pay. Um, no, so we certainly don't do any billing, coding, uh, anything like that. That's fantastic, yeah. So because nobody is billed in your emergency departments specifically, do you have a problem with a influx of patients coming in for frivolous complaints? Yeah, I think that is part of the system, part of part of the problem. Uh, also, into general practice, um, yeah. you get the same sort of. It's difficult, isn't it? <laughs> Clinically, I see it as frivolous, but it's obviously quite important to the patients for them who might not know what the problem is. Sure. Um, part of it, a lot of that is seen in in general practice, I think. Um, and as long as you can access your family doctor quite quickly, hopefully you don't abuse the A and E, the emergency department. Um, by turning up unnecessarily but of course it's part of the system that yeah it is a recognized problem um, and no easy answer to sure to how you might solve that sure. yeah because even we obviously have that problem as well too if someone were to need a specialist how does that work do they still go through their gp or can they go straight to specialists like how does that work no you on the nhs you couldn't go straight to a specialist and um, without a referral so your gp might see you initially and try and sort out whatever the problem is initially they're fantastic gps they're very general uh, good knowledge on lots of different things and they're very used to managing common complaints that they'll see in their communities if they then get stuck and feel that they need to make the referral to the specialist in the hospital then they will write the letter and refer the patient on to be seen in the, the specialist clinic and that's appropriate and then that consultant in the hospital might write back and say have you tried doing this first here's some advice here's some guidance on what you should be doing or they'll convert it into a and accept the referral and then look you in to be seen in the outpatient okay. clinic that's needed. That sounds like amazing collaboration. Yeah. Is that not what it's like in the States? Well, we don't have quite that communication. So sometimes there's a disconnect whenever you refer a patient to a specialist. You don't ever really know what happens unless the patient returns to you with their records. There's very often very little interaction between the specialist and when you refer. That being said, I'm coming from an emergency medicine standpoint or an urgent care standpoint. So that may, of course, be different in primary care. We try and get medical records. So like, let's say you need to see an oncologist. We try and get it from their office, but we have a lot of HIPAA laws and so you have to sign a lot of stuff and so if you forget to sign it or something sometimes we have trouble getting that and then we don't have like one one ehr or electronic medical record every hospital has a different one every clinic has a different one so it's not like we could log on to the hospital and see the x-rays unless we have permission and at that hospital so if they go to my hospital that i'm doing surgery at i can look at their results but if they go to a hospital down the street or in another state or something it's almost impossible to get results unless the patient 
patient requests them and then it has to come through fax and so it can take a long time so the fact that you guys all kind of use the same system would be super helpful because that is a barrier sometimes they're like i don't know what medications i'm on but we can't get a hold of their doctor because they're closed or they're in surgery or something and so we're like well we don't know what medications you're on either if the patient doesn't know so yeah it just seems like that would work better in y'all's case Mm, yeah, I think you're giving us too much credit. <laughs> so, there is the National Health Service. It's not a very nationally joined up computer system. It is slowly getting better. Um, a lot of hospitals are still on paper notes for their patients at the moment, so not everything's recorded ah, you know, okay. um, electronically, but that is phasing out and that is getting better. But certainly one hospital, and then you go down the road, there'll be a different computer system in the hospitals. Um, and then the general practice computer system doesn't always talk to that hospital. So they are slowly beginning to link things up and make it more collaborative and easier, but certainly there isn't just one piece of software that everybody uses, and it can be very difficult, frustrating to get medicines histories or mm-hmm. images or blood test results from one place to the other. It's it's not as smooth as process as it should be. Yeah, we we agree. We know well, we know all about the, the, the trials and tribulations of finding the medical list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what is PA education like? in the UK. Can you give us an idea about what it's like? Yeah, absolutely. There are now about 35, 36 courses um, that have started PA um, training. Predominantly, they're all in England. Um, I think there's one or two in Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, to the other parts of the United Kingdom. But I think 32 or so of those courses are based in It's a postgraduate entry course, um, which means that you have to have an undergraduate degree first in something like medical science, nursing, either being a previous healthcare professional, something that gives you a bit of healthcare science knowledge. And then you can go on and do the PA master's degree. Uh, it's two years as well, which I think it's similar to uh, programs in the States. Some courses um, tend to do a, an entire didactic year and then an entire placement year. Where I trained, it was a bit different. We did a um, block of two months in the university on certain specialties, and then we'd go and do a block of placement for two months in that specialty area and then we'd come back to university flipping back and forth throughout the year and so it it was nice for me because I could concentrate on one bit and then apply that into the the area directly and then move on sure there's they're quite small mainly courses at the moment they're still sort of finding their feet and finding enough applicants to come um so there may be cohorts of 15 20 30 that kind of numbers that are coming through from each university at the moment but I think there is plans to get that and grow that larger so that they're producing higher numbers of graduates. Mm, fantastic. What is your educational background? Me personally? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was um, I did biomedical science as an undergraduate degree. I always knew I was quite interested in molecular and genetics and that kind of stuff and thought I might go down to the academic research route. Um, but after doing a little bit of research, I kind of went off that idea and then found myself volunteering with our local ambulance service doing some direct patient care. I thought actually what I love is, is helping patients and, and using what I know from a biological point of view, but applying it and helping somebody. So then I was in the university and they were advertising for the first cohort of PA students to come and train in the, U, in the UEA, University of East Anglia. And that's went and sat to their open evening and heard all about what the course was going to be like and thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. So signed up and loved it. Really, really enjoyed the two years. Really tough, really intense training. And um, obviously some teething problems being in the first cohort, mm-hmm, yes. issues that needed ironing out, and, and it's gotten a lot better. But yeah, really, really enjoyed it. So had lots of face-to-face teaching, um, simulation training, clinical skills, lots of training on how to um, construct consultations, uh, consultation skills, communication skills, and history taking, all that kind of stuff. 
and then we're posted into hospitals in the surrounding area to go for placements so that we cover the vast majority of different services there are on local areas and they link you up with GP practices as well and mental health hospitals so you get a good spread of experience in, in all areas. Okay, so what happens after you graduate? Can you work anywhere in the UK? Can you work outside the UK? What's it, what's it like as a graduate? So at the end of your university course, you take your final exams, hopefully you pass, and then you have to take the national exam, which I think is quite similar to the setup in the States. Um, if you pass nationals, that gets you onto a register. At the moment, the register is entirely voluntary. There is no force of law, there's no legislative body, there's no sort of statutory regulatory body in place at the moment. That is coming um, in the next sort of 12, 18 months, we hope. Something called the General Medical Council. It's doctors in the UK and has done for two or three hundred years. The GNC, the General Medical Council, are going to take on PAs. Um, and it's the first time the GNC have ever regulated any anybody else, any other profession apart from the doctors. So it is an amazing leap forward um, and will hopefully give us a lot more credence and a lot more acceptance in the medical community to be seen under the same umbrella as the doctors. But at the moment, you take your university exam finals, you pass that, you go and take your national exam with the faculty of PAs, that gets you on the, their register, and then you apply for jobs wherever you fancy working. Um, so yeah, you can work anywhere in the UK, uh, different countries in the UK different areas you can go and work wherever you want to and if that's in primary care in general practice or whether that's in a hospital that wants to employ is well there are no restrictions um, on where PAs can work Uh, it's at the whim I suppose of can you find a job that you want to work in in that area have they made a job (laughs) that you can apply for but there are jobs coming up in all sorts of super sub-specialties like neuro-oncology or plastic surgery bits and pieces or you can be quite general like me and work in acute medicine which is sort of everything and everything <laughs> yeah so what yeah. Is, what is the pay like in the in the uk for different specialties or different um modalities so actually it's all the same um being part of the national health service you get paid the same amount of money um for wherever you work in the country whatever specialty you're working in if you're employed as a physician associate, you're employed on a certain pay band, wherever you are in the country, whatever job you're doing, and everybody gets paid the same. Same with the nurses, same with the junior doctors, physios, paramedics. Uh, we're all on the same pay scale, and you get banded at certain um, points, depending on what your job is. Um, so you earn the same amount of money um, across the UK. So a newly qualified PA coming out of school will start at something like thirty-eight to £40,000. Um, there's a slight uplift if you live in the middle of London. They pay you a cost of living premium because it's more expensive to live in London than the rest of the country. So you earn a little bit of an extra just to help with cost of living. But apart from that, the rest of the UK is sort of one flat rate. Do you find that PAs, are they mostly London-based or do they just work everywhere? No, now that there's that spread of universities offering the course, um, I think initially it was in London because that's where the trial sites were in the first sort of courses sprung up but now it's in every part of the UK um, it's certainly very easy to get jobs in England um, for PAs Wales is quite rural and has some very isolated parts of the country same in Scotland lots of hills and mountains yeah so they're far more rural and I think perhaps it's slightly more difficult it just hasn't changed hasn't gone up um, to get jobs completely everywhere but by and large it's yeah you can be completely across the country so during your placements which uh, we call clinical rotations are you able to do any international placements 
Not at my university. That wasn't something that was on offer. Although I know the university course at Wolverhampton has been doing international rotations um, for a long time um, with Professor Phil Begg and uh, has been running that course. I don't think it's standard um, for PA students in the UK to do international rotations. It would be quite exciting if that could be something that could happen in the future. Sure. Yeah, and then I know you talked about like you get different placements. Is there certain specialties that you are required to have placements in or is it just in the surrounding hospitals or what physicians will take you or are they tell physicians they have to take you like how, how does the placements work are they certain specialty areas yeah so there is a document produced by the faculty of physician associates that specifies how many hours you should have in each specialty uh, breaking it down to cardiology respiratory pediatrics mental health family general practice so it gives you a rough amount of how many hours you need to spend in each area and the universities have to coordinate that and make sure that that's what's on offer and the body that I mentioned earlier, Health Education England, is sort of responsible for quality assuring um, the okay. local areas that that's happening. And once General Medical Council regulation kicks in, they will be setting the standards for how much time you need to spend and ensuring the quality of the education experience for students that way. Okay, so they will kind of take over the overseeing once they register you guys? Yeah, they become that in law. They have okay. that legislative power to make sure that happens to make sure that the graduates that come out at the end of it are of a certain standard. That's fantastic. That's a huge leap forward for you guys. That's that's really yeah. exciting. It's really exciting. Yeah. Can't wait for it to happen. <laughs> and on that note, where do you hope and see the PA profession going in your country? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> it's one that we all talk about all of the time um, as PAs. We often look to the States to, uh, to see what's happened there because we sort of see ourselves following perhaps in your footsteps of what's occurred, but also making it appropriate for the healthcare system in the UK. At the moment, there's no post-qualification exams or certification or, or anything that you can do as a PA to prove yourself as a specialist in a certain area, but I imagine that that might come. Um, so like the doctors can choose to become cardiology doctors or respiratory specialists or, or whatever specialism they choose, I imagine at some point there will be a way for PAs to certify that they can work at a certain level of specialism in that area. But on the flip side, I hope that that means we don't lose our generalist mm. uh, knowledge. I hope yeah. that that means we can still recertify as generalists every few years to prove that we can work and pivot and move when we want to into other areas. So I think there's a need for the development of post-qualification assessments and exams um, to legitimise PAs working in those areas. I see a lot of PAs going into education because of the expansion of the number of university courses. Oh, sure, yeah. It's going to now be a need for PAs to be the ones that are teaching PAs. So I think a lot of PAs, certainly myself as well, I'm interested in education. I love teaching students that I have on placement, so I will look to get involved in that. There's a definite need for PAs to be involved in research in academia, mm, yeah. not just clinical research and design therapies, but actually research into the workforce, research into the NHS and how PAs are landing in the workforce and how that can be made better and how that can be developed and what levels of supervision PAs are going to need. All of that is going to need to be fleshed out and researched and the evidence base is built up for that. So I think a lot of PAs could get quite heavily involved in that. And leadership as well, I think, will be a big part of PA careers. Perhaps not initially, when we're all quite young, but 10, 20 years in post, you might be looking to change your lifestyle. You might be wanting to do less nights or, or not to do the weekend shifts. Sure. In so you might move into more of a leadership role, either in your hospital, leading the PA group within your hospital, policy work, governance work, making sure things like that, sort of leading the profession forward that way. So I think there's lots of options for PAs. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's similar to over here where you can work in academia, you can work full-time clinically, you can research. And so it is it is fantastic. And I, I'm with you. I, I want to keep the generalist idea of being a PA so we can find needs in our community and be able to fill those needs because they're going to change. As we saw with things like coronavirus, the needs of our community changed where we need our medical providers changed. And it's not as easy for physicians to, to change, but for PAs, it's a little bit easier for us to fill those gaps. And so I totally agree with the fact that we need to stay, you know, we need to have our general boards and be able to, if needed, serve our community in whatever way that they, whatever needs they have. Absolutely. Healthcare is a very different piece now than it was 18 months ago, pre-COVID, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I think PAs are uniquely placed to help when the next change happens, whether that's a technological change or a pandemic or something, whatever changes life. I think PAs are, are going to be able to use that and be at the forefront. For sure, for sure. I totally agree with that. Who is James when the white coat comes off? <laughs> so that might not mean very much because we don't have white coats in the UK. <laughs> But if I take it to mean, who am I when I'm not a PA? Yes. Uh, so I live in quite a rural part of the UK, and I am quite a homely person. I haven't gone very far. So I was born in the hospital that I now work in. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I work in the town where I went to high school. In my The GP practice is in that town. So I often see some of my friends and teachers and, and things like that. And I also work in the town where I went to high school is where my general practice job is now, so I'm quite homely. Um, I live on what used to be a farm, uh, so we collect animals that need a home. So we've uh, got chickens and horses and tortoise and dogs and cats, and we look after all of them. Oh, so you've got cool. a good heart. Yes, you have such a sweetheart. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice, especially when the weather's lovely. It's a really nice part of the country to be in. That's like, what, like 10 days a year? All right, and so if our listeners want to um, follow you, James, where can they find you? Excellent. Uh, we're on Twitter at PA Podcast UK, and we've also got a Facebook page, PA Podcast UK, as well. It'd be great to hear from other PAs across the world and to hear how it's different to the parts of the world. Great, and we will include your information in the show notes for all of our listeners who's interested in getting in touch with you. Listeners, go to either Spotify or Apple Podcasts and follow, subscribe to PA Podcast UK. Great information there, and thank you so much for uh, coming onto our podcast and for just being lovely. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been really nice to meet you. Thank you, James. Thank you. If these episodes are helpful for you, we would be so grateful if you would subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also, if you need help applying to PA school, check out the episode notes. The application to acceptance course is huge and filled with all the tips and expert advice that we have learned in our years of working at PA programs, reviewing CASPA applications, choosing who to interview and who to accept. We are so excited for your future and are here to help you get into PA school and then get through PA school. Thank you for listening.